So my heart today as we, you know, walk through this, read this chapter together, and uh, ask the Lord to help us to see what it means and what we do with it. My heart, uh, I think of Philippians 125, where Paul's dealing with, um, you know, he would rather depart from this life and this world and go be with Christ. <clears throat> but he saw it necessary to stay, and he said to continue with you all for your progress and your joy of faith. And I feel that same thing, that I, I desire to hover over the Word of God right now for our progress, that we would progress and increase and grow in the Lord, and for our joy of faith. And I think in particular that word faith there. We've talked about um, Abraham's life. Abraham, Abraham, all over the New Testament, is put forward as an example for us as a man of faith. And so we've been asking God over this time, Lord, would you please build into us in deeper, deeper ways our faith in you, our, uh, our true and living faith. As we'd be people that walk in faith throughout our everyday lives. So this is, what, this is my heart this morning. I'm asking God to help us for our progress and our joy of faith, as it says in Philippians 125. So let's pray and we'll move into that. Father, please help us as we come to your word right now. God, we come humbly to your word, although not as humbly as we are. God, we don't trust in our own selves to understand truth. God, we don't trust in our own intellect, our own understanding. God, we need you. So we need the power of your spirit, God, to come and do a work in us, God, to open our eyes to the truth, to help us to see we need your help, Lord. And God, ultimately, we're here because we want to be with you. We want to we experience your presence, God, and you speaking to us through your word. So please, God, come and do, do just that. And Lord, we trust you to do it. God, you, you, you have pursued us, God, when we were wretched and gone astray, God. And even, even since you saved our souls, God, when we have had hard hearts towards you, God, and coldness towards you. Lord, you've pursued us again and again. And I believe, God, that you would do the same even now that you would pursue us as a people through your word. So please, God, help us to lean in, to incline our ears and hear. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to love truth. Give us submissive hearts to truth. You're so good to us, Lord. And I praise you, God, that we can ask you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've read ahead and, and you've read Genesis 23, which I know a lot of you uh, kind of in preparation for the preaching of the word, y'all read through the chapter that's coming up. So if you've done that, you know that uh, Genesis 23 can seem like a very ordinary story. You've got uh, Sarah dies here, which obviously would be a, a tragic thing to Abraham that Sarah dies. But then the majority of the chapter, it seems very mundane. It's just uh, Abraham uh, trying to uh, go back and forth with the Hittites to try to buy a plot of land. And so the, the majority of the scripture seems very ordinary, mundane, trying to buy this plot of land. But I would submit to you that this chapter is really about faith. The Genesis chapter 23 that we're getting ready to read in just a minute, that it's really about faith. And I want to say a few things about faith. I believe faith has been very, very watered down, just like Satan stripped so many words of their meanings uh, before our minds. I believe this word faith has been very watered down in this culture. So just a few ways that it's been watered down. 
The word faith is seen so often as just a, a state of mind where everything will be okay. Everything will be fine. Just got to have faith. It'll all be all right. And that's the kind of faith that's a false faith that has no uh, no substance. It doesn't have an object of God in His Word. It's just everything's just state of mind. Everything will be okay. It's a false faith. Another false version of faith would be what I often like to call the Disney movie faith. I'm sorry if that offends any of you Disney lovers out there. Um, but the Disney movie faith, it's just a, it's just a caption. Just, just believe. Just got to believe. May believe in yourself. Uh, it's a false faith. It's this magical version of faith rather than this trust in God and trust in his word. So a lot of false versions of faith. You've got the uh, unthought out, uh, uh, unintellectual Type uh, ignoring of the facts type faith, which is not biblical. Biblical faith is rooted in facts, rooted in evidence that therefore, because of the evidence, because of the facts, we trust God. We trust his word. Or faith a lot of times can just be seen as uh, just a religious word with only religious meanings. When the reality is the word faith in the Bible is a very, that's a very common word with common usage. It's a word that's not just given to religion, but a word that's just like a child trusting his father because he knows his father will be there. He knows his father has always been there for him. So he trusts his father. It's a common word of trust in God. And I would say that everybody at different, way, different ways and different points in their life, they exercise some sort of faith and faith in different things, whether it be in themselves or outer things. But the reality is, is God's word moves us to shift our faith, shift our trust from ourselves and from anything in this world to the living God in Christ who died for us. Faith is a trust in God and it's rooted in his word. It's rooted in the word of the one who is the only one trustworthy. Charles Simeon, uh, he said this. It's a quote about faith. He said, there's no Christian grace, the want of which is so much condemned in scripture or the exercise of which is so much applauded. As faith. As faith. Do you understand that quote? So he's saying of all the, you know, the spiritual graces, one of them being faith, there is none of which if you lack faith is so condemned in God's word. And if you have faith and it's increasing, it's applauded in God's word. So there's no other, there's no other Christian grace like this. And I, I agree with that. Um, I think the importance that's placed on faith through, throughout God's word is obvious. You read through the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The summaries in the New Testament of that Old Testament, Hebrews 11, is by faith this happened. And by faith, this person did this. And by faith, this person did this. This is by faith. Faith is all over the Old Testament. You get into the Gospels and it's everywhere. Jesus says, I didn't do many mighty works among you because of your unbelief. He says, let it be according to your faith, according to your faith, let it be. And he marveled at one man's faith. Faith is all over the Gospels. Ephesians 6, 16 talks about the, uh, the armor that we put on. It says, above all, put on this shield of faith. Matthew 23, 23 talks about faith as the weightier matters. First Corinthians 13 puts it in the big three. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is a big deal all over God's word. And I believe in a lot of ways we've gotten away from that. At least as a culture, we've gotten away from that. When you have faith, I believe faith affects everything. Literally everything in your life is affected by faith. Your emotions 
are affected by your faith. When you have a true emotion of a joy of Christ, the joy of the Lord, that's because deep down here, there's a true faith in God. You really believe what it says about him and about his gospel. And therefore, joy comes out when you have a true and godly sorrow or a fear and trembling that's springing out of a faith in God, a true faith in him. So it affects your emotions. It affects your actions. Think about what the Bible says about evangelism. Why do so many of us neglect evangelism? Well, at the very bottom of that, you can say it's a lack of faith. If we really believe what God's word says about heaven and hell and Christ and redemption and the nations, man, we'd be evangelists to the core. So faith is at the bottom of all this. It's at the bottom of uh, the, way we, uh, the way we spend our money, the way we deal with possessions, the way we make decisions, our career paths. The faith that we have in God affects absolutely everything. It's at the bottom of all your sin. We, we walk in the sin of prayerlessness. Why? We don't really believe what God has said. We don't believe he hears. We don't believe we have access to him. So we walk in a prayerless manner. If we walk in sexual morality or covetousness, what's at the bottom of that sin? We truly believe, as ridiculous as it sounds, that that thing that we lusted after was actually better than the joys that are found in Christ. So faith is at the bottom or the lack of faith is at the bottom of even all sin. Faith is very, very important. And I believe Satan has an aim to destroy your faith or at least to weaken it, to destroy or weaken your faith. He does it by slandering God to you. If he can get you to think false thoughts about God, your faith is weakened to slander God's word to you. If he can give you false thoughts or little thoughts about God's word, your faith is weakened. And faith is a big deal all over, all over his word. And so what I want to do is read Genesis 23, and I'm telling you that I believe it's mainly about faith. So I want to read it. Let's look at the plain sense of Genesis 23. Just understand what's here. And then let me help us make the connection of this being about, about faith. So let's start with the first two verses. <clears throat> Genesis 23, verse 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So we, we see Sarah dies and Abraham mourns. Now you imagine the pain that would have been here. This, could have, this very possibly could have been a, a hundred year or plus marriage. And she dies. And, she, and he's mourning and he's weeping over the death, over the death of his wife. Now, when you really get into this chapter, it actually, it, it kind of, Sarah's death is almost spoken of as a secondary issue. And the main thing that we see are those mundane, mundane details about the, the buying of that plot of land. And I'll talk, we'll talk more about why that is in just a moment. But I want you to see, don't, you know, don't, don't let that Make you think Abraham's being insensitive here. Abraham is weeping and mourning over the death of his wife. It says Sarah's 127 years old. That puts Abraham at about 137. He still has a few more years to go. Puts Isaac at about 37. And it puts Ishmael, who was cast out, at somewhere in his late 40s or early 50s. And so here's, here's something I want to say real quick. Just in honor of Sarah and what we see about Sarah here. Is uh, to the women of Grace Community Church. I believe this. That Sarah is put forward to us as an example. 
an example of a, of a woman of faith, of biblical womanhood. So I think we should look to her. Ladies, you should look to her as this example. She's the only lady in the Bible that we're actually given her uh, the details of her age like this. Uh, her her age as she dies at this particular age. And also, and, and more important than, than that, if you look through the New Testament, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 11, it, it puts forth Sarah as, as a woman of faith, an example of faith. Hebrews eleven thirteen. she's part of that group that died uh, having not yet received the promises, but saw them afar off and was a stranger and sojourner on this earth. She, she's uh, put forward in 1 Peter 3 as a woman, the, the, the holy women who trust in God, the holy women who hope in God. So she's put forward as an example. So women of Grace Community Church, I encourage you, think about Sarah and, and take Sarah's example, especially in the New Testament. All those verses that speak about her. Put them together in one spot and meditate on this is the example of a woman of faith. And you've got to get your example from God's word. Because if you go to the culture, you're going to get all kind of messed up stuff. You could go anywhere from uh, godless feminism to, you know, biblical womanhood is, I don't know, some kind of classical version. Where you sew all your own clothes or something. I don't know. It's just a, it, it, What I'm saying is the Bible tells us. What biblical womanhood is. So here's what I want to do real quick. Ladies of Grace Community Church. This is my prayer for you. I have a summary statement of Hebrews 11, 11, Hebrews 11, 13, 1 Peter 3. Into one place of this is what biblical womanhood looks like. This is what we pray for you. This is what we cry out to God to do in your life. And here's, here's my statement. Biblical womanhood is holy women who hope in God. Adorned with good works. Fearlessly obeying him, living as strangers and sojourners on earth, longing for heaven, living by faith, considering God faithful to his promises. How about that? Now, ladies, in honor of Sarah's death here, let me just say this. This is what I pray for you. This is what many people. This is what the Bible puts forward to you is walk this out. Don't get a false version of biblical womanhood. Walk this out to the glory of his name. And if you notice, there were several Bible phrases there. Let me read it one more time. And I want you to pray these things for yourself. Holy women. That's from 1 Peter 3. Who hope in God. 1 Peter 3. Adorned with good works. Fearlessly obeying him. Living as strangers and sojourners on earth. Longing for heaven. Living by faith. Considering God faithful to his promises. Women of God, I want you to go after this. So Sarah's died. Abraham mourns. And let's look at the story continued. Verse 3 through 16, we're going to see Abraham purchasing this plot of land. Verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. And he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence, 
as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bear your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will hear me. But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your, bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights of Current among the merchants. Alright, so what do we see here? We're seeing Abraham purchasing, purchasing this plot of land to bury his wife. Let me just give a brief summary of what just went down so we'll all be on the same page, okay? So Abraham asked the Hittites. He, he, he goes to them and he's asking for a place that he can buy, that he can purchase to bury his wife, Sarah. And the Hittites, they answer favorably. They say that we think this is a good idea. So Abraham asked a more specific question. He has a specific place in mind. You can read it in verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9. If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. That's who owns the piece that he wants. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. So that's the cave, the cave of Machpelah. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, notice he wants to give the full price. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So Ephron, he's in the crowd, he speaks up, and he actually offers it to Abraham for free. And Abraham rejects this free offer because he wants to pay full price for the land before all the witnesses of the Hittites that are there. And then they come into an agreement there and Abraham pays a lot of money. He pays the full price and even more, a lot of money for this land, for this cave, for the field that this cave is in. And he buys it from the Hittites and he does it before all these witnesses so that they can see it. Go to verse 17. Here we're going to see Abraham bury Sarah on this land that he purchased. Now, here's what I want you to notice. We're about to read verse 17 through 20. I want you to notice again that the details about the land seem to be prominent here. Sarah's death almost seems to be talked about like kind of a secondary thing going on. But the details of the land seems to be prominent. Look at verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to which was to the east of Mamre, the field which the cave that was the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area. Was made over to or deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over, deeded over to Abraham as property. For a burying, burying place, excuse me, by the Hittites. So here's the details 
of this section of scripture. I hope you understand the plain sense of what's going on. Sarah dies. And Abraham begins to bargain for this land that he buys. Uh, he buys among the Hittites. Let's walk through kind of a series of questions or, or, or bullet points here. Uh, to see what we can get out of this chapter. Okay, Number one is this. And it's on your study guide. Number one. Why is Genesis 23 recorded for us? Why is Genesis 23 recorded for us? I would submit to you that it's about Abraham's faith. That this chapter is, is given to us because it's about Abraham's faith. Now think about it. Doesn't the, uh, the emphasis of the details of the story seem a little off to you? I mean, you think it's about to be about Sarah's death and all of a sudden the whole body of it, most of it, is, is about the details of this land that he's purchasing. And that seemed a little bit off to you. So I think one thing we can conclude is Genesis 23 is not just the end of a great love story between Abraham and Sarah. And it was a great love story. And then it's over. It's not about that. It's about more than that. And I'm saying to you, I think it's about God fulfilling a certain promise and about a certain man's faith in that promise. Namely, Abraham. It's about God fulfilling a promise and about a man's faith in that promise. Okay, so you say, how do you see that? Where do you see that? What promise is in the process of being fulfilled in Genesis chapter 23? So let me remind you of this. If you think about what we've been studying in, in, in the life of Abraham, Genesis 12 until Genesis 23. You've seen this theme of the offspring promise and the land promise. The offspring promise and the land promise. It's been like a theme that's run all the way through these chapters of scripture. So you remember that, right? So think about Genesis chapter 12. The first thing we see him tell Abraham is, Abraham, here's the offspring promise. Abraham, in your seed, in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. Translation, Abraham, there's coming one through your lineage. I know it seems like you can't have a child, but you're going to have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son. And down the line's coming the Christ, and he's going to bless all nations and crush Satan's head. That's the offspring promise. And then right after that, he gives them the land promise. He tells them to leave Ur of the Chaldees to leave this place, come into this land. And Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, which sounds nuts because he's just a family man in this place. And all these people groups and nations around him, how in the world am I going to possess all this land? But God tells him, you're going to possess this land. And so the reality is, as you see this theme of offspring promise and land promise going all the way throughout Abraham's life. It's mentioned again in Genesis 13. It's mentioned again in Genesis 15. Again in Genesis 17. It's referred to over and over and over again. The offspring promise and the land promise. He's reminding Abraham of it again and again. It's a theme. It's a theme throughout this part of God's word. And so I believe this chapter, chapter 23 the promise that's in, in part of being fulfilled is that land promise. So as Abraham moves forward to purchase this land, what we should have in view is that land promise that's run from all the way back in Genesis 12 up until now. I want you to think about this. Put your thinking caps on. Genesis chapter 21. Okay. Isaac is born. Genesis 21. Isaac, the promised son, has been born. And from Genesis 21 to 23 is 37 years and we get four events recorded for us. In 37 years, four events are recorded. 
Now, these are the last 37 years of the existence of this couple, Abraham and Sarah. And we get four events recorded for us in this 37 years, picked by the Holy Spirit. And I want to record this, record this, and record this to be in my word for the coming ages. And so what are those stories that are recorded for us in these last 37 years in Genesis 21 through 23? Number one, we got Isaac as a toddler. And Ishmael's cast out. That's about the offspring promise. Remember? Number two. We've got the well at Beersheba is established as belonging to Abraham. The southern border of Israel. That's about the land promise. Remember that? You get to Genesis 22 and you get the third event. Which is uh, uh, God testing Abraham. And he's supposed to sacrifice his son. The promised son Isaac. That's about the offspring promise. And then you get to Genesis 23, and it's all about him buying and purchasing this plot of land in this promised land. This is about the land promise that traces back to Genesis chapter 12. So here's the way I want you to think about it. Genesis chapter 22 is an expression, you remember that, of Abraham's faith in the offspring promise. Remember Abraham, he said, he te- God told him to sacrifice his son, but he looks at the God and says, hey, me and Isaac are going up the mountain and me and Isaac are coming back down. And we find out from Hebrews 11, that's because he had faith that God, if he's going to kill him, that God's even going to raise him from the dead. Faith in the offspring promise moved him up that mountain. As Dustin taught us last week, it's an expression of his faith. Well, Genesis 23 is an expression of Abraham's faith in the land promise. It's an expression of Abraham's faith in the land promise. In other words, Abraham, why are you purchasing land here? You're a stranger. You're a foreigner in this place. Why are you purchasing land here? And why is he being so careful to make sure that that he pays the full price and that it's official and it happens before all these witnesses? Why are you doing this, Abraham? And Abraham wants his immediate family coming to have connections back into this land. He wants to make sure they have connections back into this land because he knows that what's coming in the future, the following generations, is that they're going to possess this land. And so there's other places in God's word. I'll just read one of them to you. But Genesis 25 or 7 through 10, this plot of ground is mentioned again. That's Genesis 25 or 7 through 10. Also, Genesis 49, verse 29 through 32 This plot of land is mentioned again as Abraham's immediate family has linked back into this land because Abraham knows we're going to have this land because God's promised it to us. Let me just read one of those to you. Genesis 49, verse 29 through 32. Then he, that's Jacob. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob looks at his 12 sons and says this. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave. Remember that? That is in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. So the idea here is this is exactly what happened. 
is, is Abraham's immediate family kept connections to this land. And eventually this land would be taken for the glory of God and by his promise by the nation of Israel. And so in summary, Genesis 23 is about a land promise. It's about a land promise. And it's about Abraham's faith. So let's go to that number two on your study guide. Abraham's faith. Okay. I want to talk to you specifically about his faith in this land promise. In the land promise. <clears throat> Abraham's, I believe Abraham's faith here is uh, an example for us all. I think um, surely his shortcomings have come out as we've read through Genesis 12, 1 through 23 together. But I believe still in a very real way, his faith here is an example for all of us. If you trace out the land promise from Genesis 12 and you just look at every spot where the land promise is, is, is repeated throughout this section of Scripture. These are the kind of things you see. The promise is repeated at least four times in very powerful ways to Abraham. And not only that, but God gives clear boundaries for the land. He says the, the river, from the river, the river Egypt to the Euphrates River. One time he tells Abraham, look, walk throughout the, the breadth and the length of the land. Go see it. So the boundaries are laid out. This is the land that I'm giving to you. And then God even gives Abraham in Genesis 15 a timeline. And in the timeline, he says, Abraham, you and your descendants or your descendants are actually going to be taken captive as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then you're going to come back and take this land and the promise will be fulfilled in that sense of it. So you're going to be 400 years in captivity or in slavery in Egypt and then you're going to come back. So these these promises, okay, if you trace out that land promise, I've been clearly communicated to Abraham and Abraham believes it. He just believes what God has said. Yes, he had his shortcomings, but he believes the land promise. He said, how do you know that? I know that because of his actions. I see his actions. I see what he's doing and it shows you that he has faith in God. Faith in God always affects your actions. Hear me out on that. Faith in God always affects your actions. When you live a life of faith in God, I mean, looking at his promises, looking at those promises and trusting in God. When you do that, you will take actions and you'll make decisions that only make sense. Hear me out. Will only make sense in light of the promise. So you'll do things and you'll, you'll make decisions that only make sense in light of the promise. When you live out this sort of faith, faith affects your actions. Faith is internal. But it always bears external fruit. It's something that can be seen. You remember in uh, Luke chapter 5 when those men brought the paralytic to, to Jesus to, to heal him, right? They couldn't get in the door. So they go up on the roof and they bust the roof through to let him down right in the middle of the meeting. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw something. The faith is internal, but he saw the actions coming out. It showed the faith is there. The action showed the faith. And so when you live out, I believe this, when you live out a life of faith, like we're seeing Abraham do here, it will cause you to live in such a way that it does not make sense to the world. But it only makes sense in light of God's promise, of God's truth. So consider Abraham in that matter. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham leaves everything. He leaves his family, his job, his inheritance. He leaves it all and he goes to a strange land where he's a foreigner. That only makes sense. That only makes sense in light of who God is and what he has spoken, what he said. 
Why are you doing that? Why are you leaving everything you know, Abraham, and going to this land that you don't know? It's faith in God. It only makes sense in light of God's Word. Also in Genesis 12, we see uh, Abraham's in this land that he's been promised. And he begins to build altars. He builds two altars in Genesis 12 in two different places. And these altars are a testimony to God. And they stand in the face of the pagan worship going on all over that land. It's as if he's saying, I'm doing this for the glory of my God in this pagan land. That only makes sense that he would build those altars in that land. It only makes sense in light of the promise that that land belongs to him. Genesis 13, you see the same thing. Abraham builds another altar to another place. He's just marking this place off and with God's calling card all over it as if he owns this place. And why is he doing it? He believes the promise. What he's doing only makes sense in light of the promise. Genesis 21 and 22, you see Abraham marking off that well and calling calling that place Beersheba, the southern border of of Israel. So he marks off that place. You see him marking off uh, uh, Mount Moriah, which will be Jerusalem in the future, marking that place off as if he owns this place. What Abraham's doing only makes sense in light of the promise. He's a man walking in faith. And Genesis 23 just fits along that same line of thinking. We come to Genesis 23 and he purchases a piece of land where all the patriarchs will be buried. And this only makes sense that he would do that in light of the promise. It only makes sense if he actually believes what God has said about the land. And so I believe Abraham is a living a living example or a living faith in him is an example for us to follow, to be like. If you think his, uh, if you take his actions and his decisions, you can see how they're being affected by faith. I think we should follow that sort of faith. So I want you to think about that. What about you? Where are you at with this? Can you point to promises in God's word and actually point at the promises in God's word and say, that promise is affecting me right now like this. This promise is affecting me right now in the decisions I make, the actions I take like this because of the promise. Are you, are you living in such a way that it only makes sense? There's things you do and decisions you make that it only makes sense in light of the promise. It does not make sense to the world because they don't believe the promise. Where's your faith? I think Abraham is our example. And this has been our prayer throughout this time coming through Genesis 12 through 23. That God would encourage us and build us up as men and women of faith. Of faith. Here's what I want to do. We've seen Abraham's example. Okay, so I want to fast forward in time a little bit. And I want us to look at another example. Okay, look at number three of your study guide. I want us to look at another example. What effect did the land promise and the example of Abraham have on the people of Israel as they prepare to move into the promised land? Now, do you understand that question? Okay, do you get the question that's there? So you got the people of Israel. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. That family moves into Egypt because of the famine. They are fruitful and multiply for 400 years. They're enslaved in Egypt, but they become a nation there. So now you've got this nation called Israel. Okay. And then they're exodus out of Egypt by the hand of Moses as a leader under the power of God. And you got these people and they're right next to the promised land. They're headed into that land that God promised to Abraham. So here's the question. 
That knowledge that they have, because surely this knowledge of the promise and of Abraham's example was passed on to them, right? Throughout the generations, right? Especially since Moses, their leader, is actually one that wrote, he wrote Genesis. So they know about Abraham, the promise to Abraham. They know about Abraham's example. But how did that knowledge actually affect them? Did they believe in God? Did they walk in the faith of Abraham? That's the question. And I think if you read through the Old Testament, you know, if you've read through your Old Testament, you know the answer to that question that they did not walk. They didn't follow the faith of Abraham. And I want this to be, I want this to be a warning to us. Okay. Think about what those people saw. Those people saw 10 plagues. Those people saw the Red Sea parted by the power of God. These people knew. Think about what they knew. They knew about the promise to Abraham and his example. In fact, they knew these things. And yet still they're filled with unbelief. And let that be a warning to us. Filled with unbelief. Hebrews 4.2 says it like this. The word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now think about how they should have been affected. You got the people of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. They're moved up. Just imagine them right up next to the promised land. Getting ready to go in. Now how should they have been affected? What kind of thoughts should they have been thinking? They should have been thinking things like this. Man, God promised this to Abraham again and again and again. That's our land. They should have thought, man... God said that we were going to be enslaved for 400 years. That just happened. And here we go to take the land. They should have been thinking our forefathers' altars are there. Their bodies are buried there because they had faith in the promise of God. Let's take the land. That's what should have been in their mind as they approached the promised land during that time. And that makes sense, right? It makes sense in light of the promise. It doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. But instead of, instead of imitating Abraham's faith. What did these people do? How did, they, how did they respond to the promise? Go with me to Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. <clears throat> now Numbers 13. I think this is a warning to us all. Uh, Numbers 13, we see Israel, just like I'm picturing at the edge, they're right at the edge of the land. The land that's been promised to Abraham. They're about to enter it. We've already seen signs of unbelief in these people. In Numbers 11, they're complaining. They're making plans to go back to Egypt. And these complaints are rooted in this, this, this root of unbelief in God. They don't trust God at His Word. We've already seen that in Numbers 11. And then right here in Numbers 13, 12 spies have been sent out into the land. And they come back from the land to give a report to the people about the land. It's been promised to them. And look with me at Numbers 13, verse 27. Verse 27 says, And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk. And honey, and this is its fruit. So you think, okay, it's going good. Man, they've seen the land. It's just like you said it was. Listen, and what should they do? God's promises that land. Let's go take it. Trusting in Him, not in ourselves. Let's go. But what do they say? However, that's a horrible word. 
However, I see the land there that God's promised. However, there's other things in the way. The people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Do you hear the unbelief in that? God's given a promise and the land is just like you said it was. However, there's a lot of people there, fortified cities and giants and stuff that can like completely just... None of that wasn't true, right? All that was true. Those people really were there and they really were strong and their cities really were fortified. But rather than looking at the promise, they're staring at the circumstance right in front of them. But what about the promise? Go, go to verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people. Excuse me. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Caleb believes the promise. Caleb said, I saw the same stuff y'all saw. He was one of the spies. I saw everything you saw, but I also see the promise of God. Let's go. Verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger than we. By the way, that's a true statement. That's a true statement. Those people were stronger than the Israelites. But what? But the promise of God. Go do the thing that does not make sense to the world because they're stronger than us. But, but take action in a way it will not. It, it only makes sense in light of the promise. It's faith in God. But look what they say. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. But they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spot out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw walking by sight and not by faith, the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. So just like, so you see a lack of faith here in God. And just like Abraham's actions showed great faith in God, in the same way their actions show great unbelief in God. So we have a bad example as a warning for us. Now if you need proof that unbelief is at the root of this, look at chapter 14 verse 11 really quick. 14 verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? It's not that they didn't believe he is Yahweh. It's not that they didn't believe certain facts and that he parted the Red Sea. They had to believe. Of course they believed that. But they didn't trust God. And God says, how long will these people not believe me? Not believe me. Psalm 106 verse 24. You don't have to flip there. But Psalm 106 verse 24. It summarizes this like this. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They despised the present land, uh, the land, having no faith in his promise. Why didn't they take the land? Why didn't they move forward? Because they had no faith in his promise. That faith that moved Abraham up the mountain, trusting in God that he's even, even able to raise Isaac from the dead. The faith that causes Abraham to purchase that piece of land where he's a foreigner. It's a faith that they did not have in that same land promise. And so we've got two examples before us. 
We got Abraham's example. And we got the nation of Israel's example. I want to give us one more positive example. Number four there in your study guide says the faith of Adoniram and Nancy Judson. I've been reading. Uh, thank you, Nick Stafford. I've been reading about Adoniram Judson. He gave me a biography of him recently. Um, so I've been reading about this couple, Adoniram and Nancy Judson. They were missionaries to some dangerous lands, dangerous places in the 1800s. And let me assure you, they were a man and woman of faith in God. The acts that they did did not make sense, did not make sense unless the promises are true, unless God's word is true. And so if you look at what they experienced, they go into this land as missionaries and they, they experience severe suffering. I mean, Adonai loses several wives to death, several children died of this sickness, illness, uh, torture, uh, imprisonments, long imprisonments, not seeing the fruit of his labors for a time. I mean, they suffer extremely in this place. It doesn't make sense. Why would you go as missionaries to this place where you know you're going to suffer? You're going to risk your life here. Why would you do that? Well, only, it only makes sense in light of God's word, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I will be with you always to the ends of the age. If you die, you see Jesus face to face. And it's better to be with him than to be on this earth. All kind of promises that you lean into that drive you into this. I want you to think about this. Adoniram, this gives you a picture of how much uh, what he was doing did not make sense to the world around him. Adoniram, when he was single and he was trying to marry his wife, Nancy, and he was talking to her father. Okay, And he's writing letters to her father. There's another man that gave advice to, to the dad of Nancy. This other man, a respected man, a churchman that gave this advice. And this is the, the advice that he gave about Adoniram Justin. He said... I would tie my daughter to a bedpost rather than let her go on such a harebrained adventure. Now imagine that hitting him. You mean these people think he's being ridiculed here and abroad? He's being ridiculed everywhere he goes? You mean these people think this is just a harebrained adventure? They think what I'm doing is crazy. It doesn't make sense to them. In fact, it only makes sense in the light of God's Word. So I want you to think about this. I want to read to you uh, something that... that Adoniram Justin wrote to Nancy's dad asking for her hand in marriage. Now, many of you read this, you've heard this before, but I want to highlight something that maybe you missed. I want to highlight what we can see in that letter, in that writing to this, this man to marry his daughter. I want you to see that the thing that drives him on is his faith in God, like the faith that drove Abraham up the mountain. Listen to this letter, Adoniram writing to Nancy's dad. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land. And her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Now, her dad's jaw drops. His eyes pop out of his head and say, what did I just read? And by the way, Nancy was saying, amen, I'm ready to go with him. A woman like Sarah, filled with faith in God, send me, I'll go. He goes on. 
Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope? And listen, I want you to see that this faith that this man has to do something that only makes sense in light of the promises and light of God's word, that faith is what drove him into this. Listen, can you consent to all this in hope, in faith, in trust that what? In hope. Of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. He knew the eternity that was to come and it drove him in to do things that doesn't make sense to the world. To walk by faith and not by sight. I think that's another example of that we can follow a faith in God. So here's a question. You see Numbers 13. The lack of faith. And you see Abraham. And Adoniram. And their faith in God. Your faith. Our faith. What is it more like? Are we more like Numbers 13? Yeah I see that. That's great. However. This and this and this and this and this. And not just trusting in God. Or Adoniram and Abraham to throw the howevers out and say, God said it, let's go. God said it, I believe in His Word, I trust in Him. Where's your faith? What are you more like? Now, if you say, I'm more like Numbers 13, unfortunately. I'm more like Numbers 13. Now, and, many, and I think all of us could at some point say that for sure. I'm more like Numbers 13. Well, if you say that, there's two things you got to do. Two things. Number one, you got to do this. You need to confess it as sin, repent of sin, and you need to lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. When Jesus came to die for sinners, He died for this sin of unbelief. You did not trust God. You, you had unbelief to God. What gives you the right not to trust in Him? And Jesus goes to the cross and He's wounded for that transgression. He's crushed for that iniquity so that we could be set free from sin. So run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you've already been saved or whether you haven't been saved yet. Run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing you got to do. The second thing is this. Second thing is you got to ask yourself the question, how do I get my faith? How do I increase my faith? How do I get my faith from Numbers 13 to Adonairam and Abraham? How do I increase in faith? And that's how I want to close with that fifth point on your study guide. How can we increase our faith in God and His Word? And I just want to give you four very quick points. How can we increase our faith in God and in His Word. I believe number one is this. You need to be convinced that your faith can increase. You just need to simply be convinced that faith really can. God really can increase your faith. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Did you hear that? Faith increases. Your faith is growing abundantly. It increases more and more. Another verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Listen to this. Romans 6, 16. 
If I can find it. Do you not know that if you... Oh, excuse me, that's the wrong verse. 6 verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's what that means. That we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That the same gospel... That frees you from sin. It frees you from the penalty of sin. It's the same gospel that frees you from the power of sin. You can walk in faith in God. Be convinced that God can increase your faith in a way that pleases Him. Number two is this. How can you increase your faith in God? Uh, welcome. I want to encourage you to welcome trials of every kind. All kind of trials. And see, them as, see, see trials as faith increasers from God. Now, this is the means of grace that you can't control. You don't wake up in the morning and say, let me go find a trial to increase my faith. Okay? God gives that to you. But what must you do? You must welcome it as a faith increaser from God. God has given this to me, this trial. We see it all through the life of Abraham. Abraham leaves everything in Genesis 12. Lands, he comes to the land that, that God told him to come to. And that's in verse 9. Verse 10 says, and there was a famine in the land. What? I got here because you told me to come here, God. And you put a famine in the land? There's a famine in the land. The, the trials of every kind are from God as faith increasers for you. You got to welcome them in that way. Welcome them in that way. Good verse for that is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, where it says we rejoice in our trials. We rejoice in our trials and tribulations. And we see it. It's like it gives this picture of gold being refined in fire. What your child is doing. So the genuineness of your faith is being tested. It's being increased. Number three. How do you increase your faith in God and His Word? Pray for it. Cry out to God to increase your faith. Pray for an increased faith. Mark 9, 24. And Mark 9, 24, that man says, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Pray stuff like that. God, I believe. But help my unbelief. God is the faith giver. All over the word of God. He's the one that grants faith to us. This should be a point of prayer for us. It should be. If, if faith truly is at the bottom of all your sin. And if Jesus really did say. I didn't do many mighty works among you. Because of your unbelief. We've got to make it a point of prayer. God. God give me faith. Strengthen my faith. Increase my faith. Oh God. So make it a point of prayer. And number four. Lastly. And we'll close with this. How to increase your faith in God. Bury as much of the word of God as you possibly can. As deep in your soul as you possibly can. Get the word of God in you. Dig into or consume your brain, your heart, your actions, your whole life with Bible, Bible, Bible. Get the word of God in you. And I say that increases your faith. Help you understand what I'm saying? If God is small to you. If God is small to you and His promises are just, they're just in the periphery, then your faith will be small. Small God, promises are off the side, your faith will be small. But if God is massive to you as He truly is, and His promises are central, they're right there, then your faith will be large, your faith will be true and real and genuine. Well, how do you take God from being this tiny little thing that Satan's convincing you of and bringing it into the mass of God that He truly is? How do you take the promises from being in the periphery to being central? How do you do that? God's Word. You come to His Word and you see who God is. And you're consumed by, look at this God. And you're reminded over and over again of His promises. And it increases your faith in this God. Let me give you one verse and this is where we'll close. 
Proverbs 22. You can flip there with me. The Word of God is a faith increaser. Proverbs chapter 22. It's verse 17 through 19. Now if you take a sneak peek up to verse 19. It says, so that your trust may be in the Lord. So that your trust may be in the Lord. There's something that will increase your faith in God. There's something in verse 17 and 18 that, that so your trust will be in the Lord. It will help you in your trusting of God. Well, what is it? Look at verse 17 and 18. And I'd submit to you, this is the word of God in your soul. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. So brothers and sisters, do that with the word of God. Incline your ear to it. Lean into it. Hear God's word. Really hear it. And apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them. What's them? The words of the wise you're leaning into. The knowledge that you're leaning into. It'll, it'll, it'll be pleasant if you keep them within you. If all of them are ready on your lips. The, the word of God in you and ready on your lips makes me think of Jesus and, and Matthew 4. When he says to the devil, it is written, it is written, it is written. The word of God's in him and it's ready on his lips. It is written. It'd be pleasant if you keep them within you. And if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. So. My final encouragement would be be consumed by the Word of God to increase your faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. And God, I pray these things over myself and my brothers and sisters, Lord. That You would make us men and women filled with faith, God. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. God, distrust, cast it far away from us, God. Unbelief, cast it far away from us, Lord. God, I pray that you would use your trials, God. Use your word. Use these words today, God, to build our faith. God, I pray that you would move us forward, Lord. Like Adoniram Judson, missionary to a heathen land, God. Move us forward, God, in faith like you did that man. God, calls us to with boldness and trust in you. To move into things that don't make sense to the world, God, but only make sense in light of your promise. God, examine our hearts. Search us, God. Show us things that need to be exposed that are unbelief in our life, God. And fill our souls with faith. God, I praise you that when we have lacked it and we've been full of unbelief, Lord, that you have granted us mercy through the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You suffered and bled and died for the sin of unbelief, Lord, for our sins. But God, I pray that you would increase our faith more and more. Help us to apply this to our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.